We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, let's take 1 Timothy 1, verse 1 through 6. Now, let me tell you what this is about as we begin here. Have you ever wondered um, questions like, what is the church? What is it supposed to be doing? What is an elder? How do you find one? What is a deacon? How does a church make decisions? Is a church supposed to vote? What is elder rule? What's the difference between an elder and a deacon? Can a woman be an elder? Can a woman be a pastor? And if she can't, why can't she? What is the uh, role of women in the local body of Christ? How are they supposed to operate? How is the church supposed to see the lost world? These are all questions that a lot of people ask, and they are answered in the pastoral epistles. 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. The church epistles of Romans through 2nd Thessalonians. There are nine epistles written to seven churches, and they're written about the doctrinal relationship of us and God and us to each other. But the whistles and bells and gears and pulleys of how this group of people is supposed to operate is contained in three books, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. And quite often, they are neglected by the church, and we have some problems. Now, I want you to know something. One of the most important messages you can give today in any church is the pastoral epistles on the church. Now, I'll tell you why. Throughout the history of the faith, the way that you come to a dogmatic position is by answering the heretical challenges that come to the body of Christ from the outside. In the first five centuries, you had to deal with the person of Christ, of who was he? And thus you had the councils of Chalcedon and, and of Nicaea that answered the questions of Christology. Who is Jesus? By the 1400s, the issue was, are you saved by grace or by keeping religion and works of the law? And so now you had to answer questions in the area of soteriology or of salvation. And thus the Reformation defined that you are saved by grace. And then you had to deal with the issue of man and sin. How much ability does a fallen man have in believing the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so the issues of anthropology and of sin, hermardiology, they were dealt with. Uh, through the Pentecostal movement, you had to deal with issues of pneumatology and the Holy Spirit. What is sanctification? That was from the 1900s on. With the establishment of Israel, now the church came to positions in an eschatology, the eschaton or the end times. And so you started to see books in the uh, 1950s, 40, 30s, uh, on through as Israel became a state because Israel is vital to the book of Revelation being interpreted literally. Now the issue is in ecclesiology. If you go to any Christian bookstore today, you'll find five books on church renewal. If you go to any seminary, that's the big catch uh, program is church renewal. And do you know why? Because a hundred years ago, you could be an Episcopalian, Baptist, Methodist, anything, and everybody, you could start a church and everybody came because you were supposed to. This church honored God and country. With secular humanism, you saw America from the 1900s on become a post-Christian country. And people no longer from the 1940s and 50s on, my generation, honor churches, Bibles, and pastors. And so from the 1950s on, people quit showing up to church, especially people that were my age, who were 32 and below. Okay. They quit showing up because they were corporate-minded, 
They did not hold to, uh, just because their parents were Presbyterian, Episcopalian, Methodist, Baptist, my generation was not corporate-minded. It had no corporate alliance. They were not going to buy into Southland Life. They were not going to buy into New York Life. You had to show them a better program or they were defecting. They just became a very independent generation. And they were not going to a church unless that church had a pragmatic sense of meeting their need. And all of a sudden, it was a great deal that happened from the 1950s on that churches in America had to start justifying their existence. Hallelujah. And you started to see a lot of churches with 1,200 seats and about 200 people because the younger generation quit going unless that church could meet their need. I'll assure you, when I was in college, I got far more intellectual stimulation and resolve and answers going to bars than I did from Sunday schools. Because all that I got in the Sunday schools, we just left with our feet planted in midair because nobody really knew what was true and they didn't have any belief in a Bible. And so my generation quit going to church. And so now the big deal is they're starting to see in a lot of denominations they're losing 100,000 people a year. One denomination loses 100 churches a year that close. And churches now on the street corners either are going to meet the needs and start doing what they're supposed to do or they are going to close. Praise God. They should if you cannot meet the pragmatic needs and the biblical needs of people. And so now what you've got to study is 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1 is the blueprint of why we are here. What's the most important part of an ox cart? Is it the ox, the cart, the wheel, the axle? The most important part of an ox cart is the blueprint. Because if I know what the ox cart is supposed to be in the mind of the Creator, I can now make ox carts infinitely. What's the most important part of a church? Pastor? Well, we'd like to have you think that. But it's not. Choir director? No. Sunday schools? No. It's the blueprint of why the church is supposed to be here. See, we get a lot of churches today that have a lot of motion without a lot of meaning that still aren't real sure what they're supposed to be doing. They go to services twice a week, have Sunday schools, but no one's real sure what they're supposed to be doing. 1 Timothy 1-6 through 6 deals with why we have been left. I've said before, you can become no more saved in God's sight than you are in Jesus Christ. So, having saved you, why has God left you here? And I have said before, why is it that we don't see guys saved, baptize them, and hold them under, and send them on to glory? Right there. <laughs> why are you left on this planet? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, it tells you the best statement in the Bible as to why you are here. He says, as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia. Now, Paul is writing to Timothy. He's given him the largest church in Asia, Ephesus. It's really key that the pastoral epistles are named 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus because that's the third generation of belief. Jesus, the Twelve, and now the apostolic delegates because we're going to pass on the apostolic word and tradition. Verse 3, as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, Remain on at Ephesus, that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation. The first thing known is that in this church, we do not deal with non-biblical issues. In this church at Ephesus, they were having Judaizing teachers among the Christians that were teaching Jewish fables and myths, kind of Washington and the cherry tree stories in Judaism, and the matrix that those 
uh, stories were contained were in genealogies. They would start telling ancient Jewish genealogies and all of the stories that were attached. And thus, in that church, Timothy was having a problem because he's trying to teach Romans and Matthew, and over here there's some guys trying to teach Washington and the cherry tree and Judaism and trying to put it on the same level as the Bible, and all that it was doing was giving rise to confusion and speculation. In this church, if you want to discuss the possibilities of extraterrestrials, you can do that at Luby's after the service. But we're not going to do it here. If you want to discuss as to whether women can wear makeup, or whether they should wear pants as opposed to slacks, you can do that. You can go to Grandy's and sit down. We're not going to do it here. Because that's not our purpose, is to deal with non-biblical, extra-biblical issues. If you want to discuss the fall of communism, go huddle around the coffee pot after church over here and do that. We're not going to do it here. And maybe some of you came out of churches, like I did, blessed, dear old Herring Avenue, Lutheran Church down in Waco, Texas. <laughs> And we would sit there in these Sunday schools and just go around and speculate because nobody knew what was true. What do you think? Well, I don't know, Leonard, what do you think? I don't know, Fred, you can marry you. And you just kind of pooled your ignorance, and that was what church was. <laughs> and man, I graduated, and I said, man, I can get that in the bars, and plus guys in bars are more honest than guys in churches. And so I stayed out of churches because I had nothing to do with irrelevance, and I didn't want to mess with it. That's not why we are here, to discuss Russia and Afghanistan ad infinitum ad nauseum. We're to be dealing with verse 4. It gives rise to mere speculation rather than furthering, and that word shouldn't be there in the Greek, what it just says is, it gives rise to speculation rather than the administration of God by faith. Now that phrase right there is the best statement in the Bible on why we are here. Let me explain this. Let me have this. Uh, Andrew, could you hand me that overhead? Yeah, hand it up here. I'm too old to bend. Thank you. Got a little AV, a little sophistication. Been to Dallas Seminary, you know this stuff. All right. Let me show you what the purpose of the church is. Right here. See that? That's what it is a lot of times, isn't it? Nothing. We are not into speculation. We are into the oikonomos of God, which is by faith. Now, we got to know what that means because that's the finest statement in the New Testament as to why we're here. We're not into extra-biblical questions that lead to speculation. We are into the and we've got to know what this word means. It's a favorite Pauline word. You use it a lot, you're just not sure what it means. You ever use the word economy? Economia. House, oikos, house, nomos, law. You know what an antinomian is? He is no law, against law. The purpose of the church is to present the house law. Now, how are you going to interpret that? Well, administration. The economy. An oikonomos is when the guy in the position of authority reveals his requirement to the people under him. 
If you go swimming at a swimming pool, that swimming pool has a certain oikonomos, a certain economy. You don't bring glass to the pool, you don't run on the sides. And if you do, you're out, because that's the law. In a house, there's an economy, an oikonomos, a house law, you're in by 11.30. In a dorm, there's a certain economy, you are quiet after 10. It's the house law. It's the head of the house giving a revealed decree. And there's no argumentation. You and I, as Christians, have an economy that we're under. And it is not coming by speculation. It is not by myths and fables and genealogies. You know where it comes from? It is something by faith. It is revealed and you believe it. You don't speculate. God has given the apostolic truth, His Word, and it is to be believed, not speculated on. What is the okonomos of God, the economy of God? Here's what it is. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. There is one name given unto men by which they must be saved. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off. He who believeth on the Son hath eternal life. He who believeth not on the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That is the law of God. I can remember being in college. I came out of a church that we did not know what was there. Nobody believed the Bible. It was speculated. I left college or church, uh, church, came to college, never set foot again in a church until a guy came into my room in 1971, 72, and he laid the economy of God on me. And he talked to my roommate and he turned to me and he said, you are a sinner. God has given his son to die in your place, to be punished for your sin, to declare you righteous. It is to be accepted by faith and if you reject it, you will go to hell. Now, there were no plan B right there, see. <laughs> and this guy was the first guy I had ever seen that dealt with the issue and said, that's the way it is. Now, that is not something you have to figure out yourself. That is something you can believe and you can bank on that God has made himself known. What is the purpose of the church? It is evangelism and discipleship to herald to men what God requires to bring them to faith and then to teach them that Bible. And I'll tell you why. Because see what it brings about in verse 5? It doesn't bring speculation. It brings change. The end, the telos, the goal of our instruction is love. And look what we're going to deal with in love. We're not going to deal with a woman's cosmetics. We're not going to deal with her dress. We're not going to deal with whether she can wear her hair up instead of down. We're not going to deal with whether a guy dances or not. We're going to go to the heart and the conscience and the faith. We're going to get deep in him. It's going to be love that comes from a pure heart. And that's when your heart is broken and you seek to know God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. Not only that, we're going to deal with a good, an agathos. Some of you have clear. It's probably the idea of a good conscience. And that's when a Christian is walking according to the economy and the Word of God, obeying Him. They can sit in church. They are confessed in their sin. They're walking according to His standard. And they feel good about themselves because they're obeying God. And a faith that is unhypocritical. Ah, hupokrenomai. We're not going to have a bunch of duplicity people that sit in church and live like the devil out there. We're going to deal with their faith, their lives, their love, their belief, their conscience, and their heart.
I'll tell you how this shows up. I get to see this. If you join Denton Bible as a member, you go through some membership classes, you learn our doctrine, our position, and if you ascribe to a fundamental doctrine of biblical inerrancy, of uh, the deity of Christ, we leave room for guys to harden in their theology as to whether they hold to this or that. But the main issues of Christ, his deity, justification by faith, biblical inerrancy, we don't have a guy if he's a member, if he holds to evolution, he's going to be creationist according to the Bible. And if he is, he has to write his testimony down, and he's got to convince me, because I'm the final eyeball that looks at his testimony that he's converted. Because the church, you're admitted to the church by grace. And so I read his testimony. And every once in a while, I pick up a testimony of somebody becoming a member here, and uh, the, it'll be, I'll, I'll get, pick it up, and I'll say, oh, I know this guy. I love him. He loves God, serves God, witnesses, shares it. Sure, I know he's a Christian. And I get to reading his testimony, and it'll go something like this. This happens a lot, and it thrills my soul. Because it tells me that on a good day, we're doing what we ought to be doing. It says, I grew up thinking that I was saved because I was in a Christian family in a Christian church, but I had never trusted Christ as my own personal Savior until I came to Denton Bible. And I heard somebody get up and share that you were saved by being converted, by putting your faith in what he did upon the cross, not by what you did. And I went home and I trusted Christ. I had one woman say to me, a godly woman in this church, she said, I heard you say that if you're not a Christian, go home, kneel by your bed, put your faith in Jesus Christ, and nail it down. And she said, I did just that. I said, you're kidding Nobody ever does what I tell them. And she did it. I was thrilled. See, what had happened was we had presented to her the requirement of God, and she believed it. And she went home and trusted Christ, and now she's growing in the Lord. She's an evangelism explosion, and she is just doing great things. They've led their kids to Christ because we were doing what we should have been doing. I'm doing a baptism over Don and Margie Fletcher's in their pool. I get a guy out there in front of me. Uh, there's old Dave Walden here. It was Dave said this. Dear guy in our church, faithful guy. I said, Dave, share your testimony. He said, well, I was such a scroungy guy that I had to clean up my life before my wife would even think about marrying me. And I did, but I still wasn't a Christian. And I came to church and I heard you share that Jesus Christ was Son of God and by believing he had life in his name and I never knew that. And he said, I did. I trusted him. He said, you prayed at the end of a message and you said, if you've never trusted Christ, pray after me and trust him. And he said, I prayed with you and I prayed, Lord Jesus, I have sinned. Come into my heart and my life. Forgive me by your precious shed blood. Take me as your child and declare me as righteous in your sight. And he said, I prayed that and my life has never been the same and I just want to announce that to you all by being baptized. See, that's what a church is supposed to be doing. To where people can say, I had all kind of weirdness in my life and I came in to the church and the small group and the Sunday school and for the first time in my life, I heard what God requires of men in the home and the business and the government and their life and their morals and I believed it and it was true and I trusted it and my life changed and now God has dealt with my heart and my faith and my conscience and I've learned to obey Him. That makes good sense, doesn't it? That's what the church is meant to be doing. Now, what happens when you don't? You get verse 6. Verse 6 is the story of the American church. It is the story of the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox Church, the historic Catholic Church, that has ultimately started out with verse 4 and ends up in verse 6. Look at verse 6. 
Some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Circle the word straying, circle the word turn aside, because that's what happens to the church. First, they quit preaching the Bible. The seminaries get filled with guys who stray, who don't believe the Bible, who don't teach pastors to believe the Bible, to scorn the Bible. And what you get across America today is a church that is led by non-Christians, of non-Christians, studying anti-biblical material. That's where the American church is, across the board. Sadly enough. You know how many seminaries are in this country that hold to biblical inerrancy? I mean, that hold to the economy of God, the word of God, the requirement of God that is to be believed? You can count them on both hands. We've got thousands, hundreds of thousands of churches with pastors coming from institutions that do not hold that God has spoken. And that is a sad, sad thing. Some men straying from these things. And whenever I get in this pulpit and start teaching about the fall of communism, whenever I start teaching these little topical deals that are extant to the faith, I really don't know how liberals do it. How do you teach every Sunday about irrelevant material and make it interesting? That's a tough thing to do. When you've got a Bible, I've got more to teach in 70 lifetimes. My problem is I just can't preach long enough or live long enough. There's too much material. And these guys are having to come up with stuff every week. The worst I've ever heard was a woman who said to me, Boy, I wish our pastor would get his stuff together. He ends up preaching up on it's Sunday on comic strips. I said, comic strips? She said, yeah, he reads comic strips and tries to give lessons from them. I said, I didn't know what to say. I said, that's terrible. She said, what's worse is it's usually Sunday's comic. I mean, you need a good three, four days to prepare a good strip. And that guy's reading it at six and giving it at nine. And we wonder why the churches are so irrelevant. Look at verse 6. Once you stray from these things, here's what you end up. You turn aside. This is a hard word to translate in the Greek. It's a medical word. You take the word trepho, that means to turn. You put the word ek, ek trepho. It means to take a body part and to twist it out of joint. You ever had a dislocated body part? You ever had a dislocated finger? Dislocated elbow, shoulder. I got one of these. Doesn't work. You know what happens? When you get a dislocated body part, a part that's turned out, it can't receive messages from the head. And it is now impotent, useless, weak, and atrophied, and it's a detriment to your body. That's where churches end up when they shut down the Bible. When they quit, teach, when they quit doing evangelism, and they quit taking their people and educating them in the scriptures, you get a church that becomes useless. And pretty soon, the only people that will attend are the people who have been schooled by their grandparents too, and the younger generation vacates it because it is irrelevant to any usage. That is sad. Well, let me show you something here. Give you an illustration before I show you one. You know what a church is like, what it ought to be? Imagine a ship with a mast and a sail. That's the way a church is. Whenever you build a ship, you build your keel and your supporting beams. 
That's your staff and your elders. The men that are weight-bearing, they've got to be solid and sound. You know, I don't know what's happening among a lot of y'all. Sometimes I don't want to know. But I know what's happening in Jim McDonald's life. And I know what's happening in Brad Evans. And I pretty well know what's happening in James Skinner and Keith Chancey, our staff and elders, because they're the weight-bearing. We've got 200 college students, and we've got one guy, James Skinner, teaching them. James Skinner's got to be solid. I see you hiding back there, Skin. All right. Keith Chancey's got 125 high school kids. He's got to be solid. Jim McDonald teaches REE. He's got to be solid. Dino Roseland handles all the 700 people in this church in small groups. And all of that weight comes down on one guy, Dino Roseland. He's got to be solid. So I spend my time with my staff and our elders. And every Thursday, 6 a.m., when you're rolling over, my staff, my elders are at prayer in my house, around my table, eating my hockey pucks, my biscuits. All right. <laughs> And we're praying, and we're looking at our lives, and we're confessing sin, and we're sharing Scripture. Because those guys got to be solid. And then, after you get your beams, now you get all your parts. Now you start taking all your lines, your, pull, your block, your tackle. They have to start working, okay? And those are the people out here that have to be well-oiled. Then what you got to have is you got to have on your mast a sail. And that's biblical teaching. You've got to take this book and open it wide where people can understand what God says. And you've got to trim that sail to the way God is pushing to meet the needs. I said to the elders, what do you think is a big need in our congregation? I said, boy, I'd like to teach Romans. I want to do that. They said, you know what I think? We've got a lot of people asking a lot of questions about the body of Christ. So we see where the wind's blowing and we take this thing and trim it to 1 Timothy. So you've got to have teaching here in the Sunday schools, in the community groups, you've got to have that sail up. You know what you've got to have then? You've got to have wind, and we can't control that. That's where we pray like crazy. Monday, tomorrow morning, every Monday, first of the month, 6 a.m., we pray. Men and women, before you go to work, we put the coffee on. You come, get in small groups, and we pray for God to enliven and invigorate our people, to bring people to faith. So you can't control the wind, you just pray like crazy and you ask for God to blow to push your church. But the other big part of a church is the rudder. The rudder gives you your direction and that's 1 Timothy 1, 3, 4, 5, 6. Why are we here? To herald to men what God has made known. What? Excuse me. What the authority has made known. To herald to men the economy of God. What he thinks about a, a man, a woman, sex, morals. Didn't y'all enjoy Song of Solomon? We picked up 500 people in three weeks. I found the mother load of preaching. Song of Solomon. You know why? Because you can read all this stuff on what Dr. Ruth says. Would you have come if I was doing a, a, a study on Dr. Ruth? Not a, not a prayer would you have come. You don't want to hear what Masters and Johnson's thinks on sex. You want to know, what does the head think on sex? What's he think about male and female roles that we can believe? That's what a church is supposed to be doing. And the day that this guy gets up here and starts talking about anything but the Bible, the Dino Rosalind gets small groups together to talk about anything but the Bible, the teaching, we quit teaching your kid the Word, that's when you guys need to have a coup and hang somebody. 
because they're not doing the job. Let me show you how, to, how you do a church. One of them, to do a church, you don't start in the, in the uh, cause and go to the effect. You start with the effect and go to the cause. Show you the most important lesson we've learned over 17 years. And we paid a high tuition for this. I speak every once in a while at Dallas Seminary, and I get those guys, and I said, let me show you this stuff. And I said, there's a lot of thought out there on how to run a church. I don't want to be dogmatic, but I'll say everybody who's ever disbelieved with this at any time is always wrong. <laughs> you can bank on this, because we paid too high a tuition to learn this. You start a church by going from the effect to the cause. The first thing you have to ask in your church is the individual. What kind of individual do you want leaving this church, going out there into that car and going home? What kind of girl, child, mother, father, boy, employee, student, worker are you supposed to be? And unless I really know what God wants in your life, we're not ready to start a church. And a lot of pastors have a very well-oiled institution that is not sure what they are producing. Here's what you're trying to produce in a church. These four things. Would you agree? You've got to first get a convert. A lot of churches, sorry, full of non-Christians. So we've got to get them converted. We've got to get them to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who is God, and to believe in his shed blood to be saved. Then after we get him converted, now let's do this. Let's get him committed. Let's get him committed to God and his glory, God and his word, God's pleasure, God's people, and God's program. Let's deal with his heart. Once we've dealt with his soul, let's deal with his heart. And let's get that Christian where he's spending time every day in the Bible seeking to obey God. David said, I will seek thy face in righteousness and be satisfied with thy likeness when I awake. David loved God and was after his heart. And that's my prayer for you. I pray it every day that God would give you a great heart and a passion for him. Well, what do we do then? Let's get him or get her or get them competent. Because now I got this college student, I got this single, I got this adult out here who says, man, I love God and I want to serve him, but Tom, I'm surrounded by non-Christians. I don't know how to witness. How many times have you seen Christians who have been Christians 20 and 30 years and have never led anybody to Christ? That's terrible. That's horrible. You can't run a business like that. Could you run a college and having kids go through for four years and couldn't read? You've got to produce a competent person. So we do not get you in services on Wednesday and Sunday night. Though we could. I'm sure we could take a Wednesday night service among 2,000 people and fill it with 500 people. But that's not the purpose that we're trying to do in this church. We're not trying to assemble masses of people. We're trying to assemble a certain kind of Christian who is converted, who loves God, and who is competent. We get them in small groups. See, in this setting, you're not accountable. You can be living like the devil, and I'll never know it. But you get in a small group with about 15 people, and all of a sudden now, people start looking at your life. You start studying and calling you account to the Bible. What's the Great Commission? Anybody know it? Go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to what? Obey, observe. The purpose of the church is not just education. It's bringing a person to the point of commitment and competence. 
So we get you in two seven groups to teach you how to study, how to memorize, how to put the Bible to work in your home. We get a woman in a uh, Christian womanhood group to teach her how to be a better wife, better mother. We get a guy in a, in a small group of men to teach him how to be a better husband, a better daddy. We want to show you how to study your Bible. You want to know how to witness? One of our elders, Jim McDonald, he'll take you on Thursday nights and he'll show you in 16 weeks how you can win others to Christ and train others. Hypothetically, what this church wants to do, and this is your final thing, creative, to where we can take you in five years' time, get your feet wet for one year, get you in a 2-7, and after about 18 months, you know how to study your Bible and you're disciplined in the Word of God. Then we let you train others in 2-7s and you can produce disciples. We get you in EE and you can train guys how to witness. You know there are a whole bunch of seminarians that can't do that. Whole bunches of pastors don't know how to tell you how to win others to Christ, how to disciple others. And we'll take you and show you how to do that in five years to where we can take you, hypothetically, and airdrop you into Afghanistan with nothing but a Bible and a pen, and you should be able to continue to walk with God, lead others to Christ, disciple them, and then we can pick you up in two years and you have a core of people. You, we're trying to produce in you a Green Beret unit. You see? Old Mel and Susan Mosier are going to get transplanted here in a few He's a chaplain. I watch Mel come to Christ in this place. I watch Mel get committed. I watch Mel get competent. In a little bit, Mel's going to get creative. They're going to ship you, aren't they, Mel? And I'm going to watch him bloom for the Lord. Or I'm going to use him as an illustration. You better bloom now. <laughs> All right. He's a military guy. You can't be easy on him. Now, once we're solid on this, okay, a lot of churches hear this and the guys hear it and start crying. Because they say, Tom, that's wonderful on paper, but it'll never work. Why not? Because we attend Snail's Pace Episcopalian over here. <laughs> we attend whatever Methobacterio, Our Lady of the Turnpike, up the highway, <laughs> down a service road, and... Uh, and there's a lot of time we attend, uh, you know, Galilee Baptist Bible Church or, uh, or something, another Bible church. And although this stuff's good, this thing will never teach us because all they're in is to assembling bodies. They're just into numbers. Communism and the mafia are into numbers. We're not into numbers. Can't use communism anymore. But we're not into numbers. What kind of church produces this kind of guy? I'll tell you how. These three things. It's got to be a church that teaches. I tell these guys, quit screaming at your congregations. I think they have classes in seminary on how to scream. And I tell them, it's no good to take a bunch of people that know they need to be good, not bad, and just beat them to death and cover them up with guilt and blood, and they leave and they shake your bloody hand, and then they have to give money. Teach them the Bible. And if you're not explaining the Bible, turning up the volume will not do the answer. Teach them the Bible. Show them what a oikonomos means. Show them what it means by faith. Show them what misogenealogies mean. Show them what it means that a goal of our instruction is love from a pure art clerk. You see what I'm saying? And that way, a pastor doesn't have to be so brilliant. He can just read and explain the thing. Teach them. Then you know what you got to do? Once you teach them, you got to be able to train them. Get them out of those services. Get them into small groups 
instead of old Leonard sitting on the back row of that church since he was six years old and not being able to do anything, get him in a group of six where somebody can put the button on him. You know what groups in our country are growing more than any groups there are among the faith? They're not churches. They're parachurch groups. Campus Crusade, Navigators, InterVarsity, Young Life, Youth for Christ. You know why they're growing? They don't have buildings. They don't have a lot of fall they're all. They got one thing. They all know why they are there. And generally in a church, if you really want to hit it for Christ, you can't do it in the church. Because all they cater to is mediocrity and attendance. If you really want to hit it, you've got to leave your church and go to the Campus Crusaders on Wednesday night. I did not get discipled in the church. I had a hunger and a desire to want to get committed and competent and creative, and I could not find anywhere a church that would help me. All they wanted me to do was sit and yell at me. I needed to get trained. And I went and found a wrestler from Iowa who was the campus crusade leader, and I said, could you show me how to study this thing? And he said, Jack, you're the reason I'm here. And that's what we're trying to do with you. Teach them, train them, and you know what the other thing you got to give them? Amen? Give them time. Most churches can't do this because their people are too busy. The church comes in between them and their family. They're at budget meetings, beautification meetings, they're at whatever meetings, they're at finance meetings. They don't have time to do anything. Their time is taken by the church. We want you to be in here on Sunday morning, and then we lock the doors. We don't want you in this building anymore unless you're in a boys' brigade or a, uh, a pioneer girls. They meet here. Your youth meets here. We don't want you in this church again. I don't even come in here. I ain't got a key to the building. I'm not coming in this place. I'm going to spend my time with these guys, producing disciples. We want you in a quality group once a week that to where at the end of a year you can say, I came from here to here. Do you really think that at the end of our year if I gave you a, a legal sheet and said, write down everything you heard from the messages you heard Nelson preach, do you think you could give me the much on a three-by-five card? You couldn't remember hardly anything. You know, I mean, you get kind of motivated, shook up, you learn some things, you're really going to get educated by getting where you can get trained and taught. Why is it that Jesus Christ didn't do lecture series to 50,000 people? He could have. Why did he take 12 guys and produce converted, committed, competent, creative, taught, trained men? I'll tell you why. Because he was smart. And it works best to produce quality that begets quantity. And I love to do this because you find out who wants to go in your church. Listen, there's a lot of times I want to say, hey, fellas, look, let's get down to the issues. Let's just draw a great big line right down the middle of the church. All you guys that want to go out and witness and learn how to win guys to Christ and get trained, you get over here. And all of you guys want to sit and soak and sour, you get over here. That's the way you feel like doing sometimes because you want to find out who wants to go and to pay a price for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't you get tired of playing around? Amen. I mean, you get tired, I get tired. And I like to see guys that want to go. Well, after we get them this, a lot of guys start crying, and they say, Tom, that's great on paper, but it'll never work in our church. How come? Because we're having to deal with the chosen frozen. 
If you're a Bible churcher, if you're a Baptist guy, you sit and you curse these guys. We got no leaders. But you can't produce this guy if you, unless you get this church, and you can't get this church unless you get these guys right here. You've got to have leaders that are sound in their belief. They've got their rudder down and their doctrine down. And once they are sound, you've got to have guys, and this is the biggest thing, that are examples. Best, example, best definition I've ever heard on a leader comes from uh, Webster's. says this, a leader, one who leads. You just eliminated about 90% of your church leaders right there. We got one, well, I've got a couple of rules on our elder board. I say to my elders, the day that you quit believing fundamentally, or you believe some kind of weirdness, bless your heart, we're going to work with you. Unless you get it straight, you're gone. Me too. Because the group is more important than the individual. The day you start beating your wife, you're out of here. The day you start abusing your kid, the day you start messing with pornography, I say to my staff, the day they start losing a battle of pornography or anything, I cannot expect deadness to produce life. The day I start doing that stuff, I'm out of here. And don't, if I go out and commit adultery, don't you let me tell you I'm coming back in two years. I'm done. I've got to deal with it. And the other thing is, I say to my guys, the day that I'm not witnessing and producing disciples and you're not witnessing and producing disciples, you can't be a leader. You can't peddle unapplied truth to these guys. I can't take an individual Christian and ask him to do what our church is not willing to emulate in its leaders. I had a church once ask me if I'd like to come there and pastor. They said, we got 24 elders. I said, no, you got 24 guys in elders' position. You don't have 24 elders. If you had 24 elders, I'll assure you, you'd have 6,000 people. They are hen's teeth to do this. Then after we get these guys, you know what we've got to deal with? A lot of elders hear this at the conferences, and they go, boy, that's great. It'll never work. Because we've got to deal with this guy. And we'll talk about that later on. <laughs> No, we've got to deal with that too. And you know what's interesting? Dig this. 1 Timothy chapter 4 deals with him. 1 Timothy chapter 3 deals with him. 1 Timothy 2 deals with him. 1 Timothy 1. Philosophy, it's method and outreach, it's leaders, it's pastor. Then we're going to get in chapter 5 and look at how the life of that body should show in loving widows. They are loving people. And in chapter 6, we're going to look at the threat to the body that keeps them from doing it. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. The world has sirened them aside. I spoke this last week at a Fellowship of Christian Athletes banquet in Dallas. It was so much fun. There was an Aggie kid that got up and shared his testimony. His name was Dexter. He said, he said, even Coach Slocum here doesn't know this. He said, when I was growing up, I had a drug problem. We're all quiet. He said, my mama drugged me to church every Sunday. 
She drugged me to Sunday school. Maybe you're here this evening or morning and you got a drug problem. Because you really don't have a heart for God. You know what you need? You need to get your heart pure, your conscience clear, get your faith real. Jesus Christ died upon the cross for you. If you have never believed in Him as Savior, can I call to you this morning to trust Him as Lord and Savior and pray and receive His living presence into your life and trust Him and declare Him openly as the one you have believed in. That is what a Christian is. And if there's a little Tommy Nelson here from 1972 that's here desperately looking for somebody in the darkness to speak some truth, God loves you. You're a sinner. Jesus Christ dealt with the root of the problem that he died on the cross for your sin and he can make you a new creature if you'll receive him as Savior and Lord and ask him and invite him into your life. He can do it then. Our Father and our God, we worship you and bless you not merely that you have given the creation but in our darkness and in our sin. You have made Yourself known in Jesus Christ. And You have shared with us not speculation, tradition, myth, and genealogy. One that is endless because it will never change. But You have given us a finite record of who You are, the infinite God. One to be believed, to trust, to have faith in. One that shows us the economy, the oikonomos of God the law of the creation, the law of the land. And that is to believe in Jesus Christ and once we have known Him, to love one another through a committed heart. We bless you and thank you for this Lord's Day. We pray that you would go with us, protect us. And I want to pray for everybody in this church and at all of our services that they would be not just committed but converted or, or rather they would be committed and creative and competent, that you would give them a passion to study their Bibles, to obey it, and to be effective in a lost world. And we'll ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.